Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 86, The Revenge of the Vassals. Now, big thanks to three new PayPal donators, Marian Karagyozov, Ivan Saryavov, and Ivailo Gerisimov. Um, some of those are longtime supporters there. And we also have two new Patreon supporters, uh, Stin Klerhaut and Veselin Ivanov. And now that I've been through the pronunciation gauntlet, I can remind you to please support us if you can. Even just $1 an episode on Patreon gets you that special uh, History of Bonsko miniseries and... I mean, just makes you a part of the supporting team and really makes a big difference. And let's get into it then. So last time, the Ottomans went on the offensive against the Safavids, intent on retaking land conquered and then lost by Suleiman. Despite some setbacks, they were successful. It took substantial territories and new vassal states in the Caucasus and Iraq. But more importantly, the massive Spanish importation of silver from the New World gradually devalued the Ottoman currency, leading to widespread corruption from local officials and, well, local regional nobodies, all the way up to the palace itself. This led to the selling of the thrones of Wallachia and Moldavia to the highest bidder, which brought chaos to both countries as their new rulers sucked every penny from their people in order to pay the debts they incurred to get their offices. Meanwhile, an Ottoman raid on Croatia ended in defeat, finally bringing an end to a hundred years of consistent raiding of that country and the beginning of formal war between the Austrian Habsburgs and the Ottomans. Now, sparked by both that declaration of war and the increasingly brutal treatment of peasants in the empire, an uprising against the Ottomans was sparked in the Banat. So far it's gone well, as they've pushed back every Ottoman force sent against them and have taken many fortresses. But now, as Crimean Tatar forces enter the fray and push back potential Austrian reinforcements, the fate of the uprising hangs in the balance. Now, the rest of the story of the Banat doesn't take long. Once the Grand Vizier decided the situation was serious and devoted substantial resources to crushing it, the rebels barely stood a chance. By mid-March of 1594, it was all over. The uprising had lasted around four to five months, but it was the first substantial Christian uprising of its kind in many decades against the Ottomans, and wouldn't be the last. Unsurprisingly, the Ottomans enacted brutal revenge on the areas where the uprising occurred. Towns and villages were burned to the ground, populations were either killed or enslaved, and taxes rose. But the reprisal which stands out most is what happened to the remains of Saint Sava, the founder of Serbian literature and one of the most important Serbian figures in history. For reference, Belgrade's main cathedral, which is I think almost finally done after about a century, is named after St. Sava. Now, it seems the Grand Vizier ordered that Sava's remains be taken from the monastery 
where they had been buried more than three and a half centuries earlier and burned on a pyre. The ashes were scattered, depriving the population of any relics of their dearest saint. Today, that grand church named in his honor sits on that very spot. But the Banat uprising was now over. Still, the circumstances which had caused it remained the same throughout the Balkans. So in 1594, as the year turned into 1595, well, the Ottomans were looking in pretty good shape. They put down that Banat uprising, despite their loss two years earlier in Croatia, they also looked to be in a strong position against the Habsburgs. But then just 16 days into the new year, Murad III died of natural causes in the, in the Topkapa Palace in Constantinople. Now, while we can't say Murad was a terribly effective sultan, remember, he allowed all that corruption to flourish and largely outsourced much of the responsibility for military leadership and governance to his viziers. But, in fact, as I've mentioned, he was actually the first sultan never to go on military campaigns, spending most of his life in the palace. In fact, just to give you a little glimpse, here's a very interesting extended quote from his personal physician, which describes his typical day. Quote, In the morning he rises at dawn to say his prayers for half an hour. Then for another half hour he writes. He is then given something pleasant as a collation, and afterwards sets himself to read for another hour. Then he begins to give audience to the members of the divan on the four days of the week when this occurs, as had been said above. Then he goes for a walk through the garden, taking pleasure in the delights of the fountains and animals for another hour, taking with him the dwarves, buffoons, and others to entertain him. Then he goes back once again to studying until he consumes the time for lunch has arrived. He stays at the table only half an hour and rises to go once again into the garden for as long as he pleases. Then he goes to say his midday prayer. Then he stops to pass the time and amuse himself with the women, and he will stay for one to two hours with them. When it is time to say the evening prayer, then he returns to his apartments, or if it pleases him more, he stays in the garden reading or passing the time until evening with the dwarves and buffoons, and then he returns to say his prayers, that is, at nightfall. Then he dines and takes more time over dinner than over lunch, making conversation until two hours after dark until it is time for prayer. He never fails to observe this schedule every day. End quote. So, you get an idea. This is not a, uh, someone in the, in the sort of mold of Suleiman. You're not some grand person who's going to be making laws and getting out there on military campaign. He's a life of leisure. You know, a man of leisure. So, with his death, that same problem faces the Ottoman realm. Murad had 23 sons, which meant there was no chance of the dynastic line ending. Surely they couldn't all, you know, die of natural causes or something. But at the same time, there was plenty of competition for the throne. But fortunately for the Ottomans and unfortunately for their enemies, there would be no civil war. Mehmet, who I presumed was his eldest son, as best I could research at 28 years old, secured his position as a successor almost immediately. Within eight days of his father's death, every single one of Mehmet's brothers 
had been strangled and buried in one of those brutal transitions of power in Ottoman history. We've talked about this process before, where the Ottomans ultimately and gradually decided that the best way to prevent the kinds of civil wars that plagued them in their earlier centuries was exactly this, that when a new sultan took the throne, all his brothers would be murdered. But you can't deny that for the empire, this was an absolute success. Civil war was avoided. But what did this transition of power mean for the war with the Habsburgs and with the empire's internal policies that had just led to that brutal Banat uprising? Initially, the answer seemed clear. Mehmed did not ride out to lead his army, but in fa instead faced a power struggle between his viziers, in which he himself was sort of sidelined by his own mother. Not only would Mehmed not be leaving the palace, initially he didn't seem to be able to even exert substantial influence within its walls. However, by July of that year, he did manage to fire one of the viziers and elevate the other, essentially resolving the dispute. One reason for the firing was that the vizier had failed in Moldavia. And, well, this story takes us back to our old friend Aaron the Tyrant. Now, last we heard from Aaron, it was 1592, and he was exploring the options of aligning himself with European powers against the Ottomans. By the time the uprising in Banat was winding down, Aaron had joined the newly formed Holy League. This alliance was spearheaded by Pope Clement VIII, but was led by the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. Although it was envisioned as more of a Slavic and Eastern European anti-Ottoman venture, uh, initially, you know, eventually the, the Habsburgs did sort of take the reins. And that kind of earlier Slavic Eastern European element of the alliance really failed. And so the Habsburgs were at war with the Ottomans and they sort of picked up the idea. It simply made sense. By 1595, the treaty was signed. And what was unique here was that actually Michael the Brave of Wallachia, Aaron the Tyrant of Moldavia, and Sigismund Bathory of Transylvania, all Ottoman vassals, all agreed to join, despite their more hesitancy to support the Banat uprising just months earlier. Now the idea here was that a joint army of Moldavians, Wallachians, and Cossacks would strike through Dobruja, that is, along the Black Sea coast, this area now split between Bulgaria and Romania, where the Black, or where the uh, Danube kind of curves upward, and it's a very flat, very flat area. And so the army would kind of come down through there along the Black Sea coast towards Adrianople. And, well, take Adrianople, eventually take uh, Constantinople. However, Poland was dealing with a Cossack uprising and actually wanted a pro-Ottoman policy. And so they were likely informing the Ottomans that they were being betrayed by their vassals. We've seen this time and time again, and we're going to see it a lot through the rest of the podcast, that very often European powers, you know, they're, they're a little bit torn here because on the one hand, you know, the Ottomans can be seen as a sort of eternal enemy because they represent a different religion and to some extent a different culture. But, you know, the Ottomans do sort of Europeanize more and more through their history as, as time passes. But there's this one element of, no, you know, we are Christians, they're Muslims, we should always kind of combat them and fight them. But then there's geopolitics. And so we'll see a lot of instances where European states, like we've seen from France in the past, 
will say, yeah, we're of different religions and things, but we also hate our next door neighbors and we would like your help in defeating them. Uh, and so this is one of those cases where the Cossacks as a, a people are causing problems for Poland and the Cossacks are aligning themselves against the Ottomans. And so Poland says, well, you know, the whole religious crusade, fight back the, the invaders, that's all nice, but um, we also don't want to deal with this kind of Cossack uprising and we would like some help in dealing with that. And so ultimately, I think it's a real reminder that taking a broader look here, right? when we look at the past, we like to pretend that people of the past cared so much about ideology, but you know they were like us. Sometimes they cared about ideology, I'd say maybe most of the time they were pretty practical. Uh, and most of these rulers and most of these people simply had, yeah, what you'd call practical concerns, running their empires rather than fulfilling some grand, uh, religiously motivated sort of ideal. But anyways, back to the narrative. So the Poles informed the Ottomans of this betrayal by their vassals. And once the Crimean Tatars were ravaging the lands, uh, kind of ravaging some of the Moldavia, the whole plan quickly fell apart. The Wallachians under Michael the Brave did make some gains. They raided deep into Ottoman territory, even at one point getting about 24 kilometers, about 15 miles, from Constantinople itself, which is incredible. I mean, when was the last time a foreign army got that close to the Ottoman capital? But Aaron the Tyrant, the leader of Moldavia, in response to these brutal raids by the Crimean Tatars, ended up barricading himself inside of a monastery to protect his own life. But Aaron did ultimately find some success. He did join Wallachian and Transylvanian forces and ultimately defeated the Tatars, just as kind of formal war with the Ottomans began. So with the begin of formal war, fighting with the Tatars, we finally see in essence, a full, formal, proper revolt by the three vassal states. And now that the war has started, Bulgarian towns along the Danube were taken and the Ottomans were actually defeated in several smaller engagements. So, interesting enough, now you know, we're seeing some Bulgarian territories get to be liberated and Bulgarians are facing this question that they faced before, right? Think all the way back to when John Hunyadi, you know, liberated Sofia, and when uh, the, the uh, Crusade of Varna came in, you know, these Bulgarians are having to ask themselves, do they join in these foreigners to fight the Ottomans and possibly risk, well, you could say an unknown future. Uh, you know, if those foreigners win, will they restore the Bulgarian Empire? Will they just simply be conquered by these people? And then there's the concern that no doubt these people knew that if they joined these uh, these kind of invading forces against the Ottomans and they lost... As we saw in the Banat, the reprisals would be brutal. And so, you know, these poor Bulgarian people are having to face that very, very difficult question. And over time, we're going to see how they resolve it. But these, so as, as the, you know, the, the, the kind of vassal states are making some gains, taking some territories, defeating some smaller Ottoman forces, they really don't trust Aaron, the leader of Moldavia. And they think he's going to betray them. And so they eventually kind of incite one of his commanders to rebel against him. And Aaron is arrested, thrown in a Transylvanian jail where he is ultimately killed. So infighting amongst the vassals doesn't look very good. But the commander, who was kind of convinced to fight against Aaron, well, he was a fascinating man. 
His name was Stefan Razvan. He was half Wallachian, half Romani. Gypsy, for those unfamiliar with the term Roma or Romani. And he had been born a Muslim and converted to Christianity. And now he was the ruler of Moldavia. Uh, honestly, it's the first and only case I'm aware of, of someone with a Romani background leading a European state. If anyone else knows of an instance when that happened, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, you know, comment on the Facebook page or send me an email or something. But, you know, he's an interesting character. He actually managed to take control of Moldavia after kind of rising through the ranks as a commander. And he was a good one. He led Moldavian forces to several victories. And so the Voivoda of Transylvania ultimately put him in charge as his own vassal. And so this guy, Stefan, went from being an Ottoman vassal to helping to rebel against the Ottomans. Now Moldavia is becoming a Transylvanian vassal, which by kind of proxy, because Transylvania, when rebelling with the against the Ottomans, became a vassal of the Habsburgs. So ipso facto, Moldavia is now kind of a Habsburg uh, vassal. But of course, again, geopolitics always comes into this, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was very unhappy because they really saw Moldavia as partially kind of in their sphere of interest, and they did not like this guy on the throne. Remember, they were sort of pro-Ottoman in this moment for, for their own reasons, and so they were willing to sort of oppose Stefan ruling and help the Ottomans to resolve this. And the Ottomans at this point... Well, somewhat understandably, they're pretty fed up with these problems with their uh, their vassals ruling Moldavia. And so they've decided that their intention is now to fully incorporate Moldavia into the empire. So to make it something like Bulgaria, where there's no you know, local Bulgarian ruler who's ruling Bulgaria as a vassal state on their behalf, it is simply an integral part of the Ottoman Empire. So... In the summer of 1595, a Polish army invaded Moldavia, defeated Stefan, and impaled him. So, he was an interesting, interesting character while he lasted, but sadly he did not last very long. But while the Ottomans weren't happy with Stefan on the throne, frankly they were just as unhappy with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth extending its influence into Moldavia. So, you know, they were willing to sort of ally and work with the Poles in order to overthrow this rebellious Moldavian uh, voivoda, but, you know, that that policy had limits because it's not like Poland-Lithuania and the Ottomans were in a geopolitical situation that would make them sort of eternal allies. The Ottomans certainly didn't trust them. And so while the main Ottoman army was bu busy kind of fighting uh, in Wallachia and fighting the Vlachs over there, some regular Ottoman forces joined a Crimean Tatar force to invade Moldavia again and kick out the Poles. So upon hearing that this Tatar-led force was on its way, the Polish army pulled back and created a kind of fortified camp on the river Prut, on, with the river Prut on both of its flanks. So they got themselves into a really strong position, and particularly because the Tatars were obviously famous for their cavalry. And if you're on a fortified camp protected on two sides by a river, cavalry is not very effective. And so this is basically how it played out. The Ottoman and Tatar infantry were going to have to be the main bulk of that attacking force, and they were unable to have any real effect on the Polish defenses after several days of fighting. And so the Ottomans sued for peace. Iremila Movila, I think is how you pronounce that name, was accepted as the new voivoda of Moldavia, and Polish troops were allowed to remain on Moldavian soil. However, Moldavia would now be a 
both a Polish and Ottoman vassal, owing tribute to both countries, something which, you know, it doesn't take a genius to guess that that's probably going to cause some financial problems in the future. I mean, it can't be easy to pay, uh, pay tribute to two different states at the same time. But what it means for now is that Moldavia has fixed its relationship with both Poland and the Ottomans, and it's basically out of the war. So now we still have Wallachia, Transylvania, and the Habsburgs as sort of enemies of the Ottomans continuing to fight the war. Now, meanwhile, further west, the Ottomans were laying siege to the Hungarian fortress of Eger, while the Habsburgs had managed to conquer Estergom and Visegrad. A Christian fleet even sacked the city of Patras in Greece, enraging the sultan so much that he considered expelling the Christian population of Constantinople in revenge. In Wallachia, Michael was forced to give more rights to the boyars, effectively making a council of 12 of them kind of co-rulers. Now, he really needed their support because a massive Ottoman army was now massing and gathering at Ruse on the Danube, ready to cross the Danube and invade Wallachia to restore control. And so they did. Around 100,000 Ottomans crossed into Wallachia in the summer of 1595, totally dwarfing the 16,000-man Wallachian army. Around 30 to 40,000 Ottoman troops met the Wallachians in August. Now, initially, the Ottomans sent 12,000 cavalry up, but a strong artillery bombardment pushed them back and won the first day for the Wallachians. The second day, the Ottomans pushed forward, attempting to simply overwhelm the Wallachians with their number. But while they found some success, by the time the sun set, the battle still remained more or less undecided. On the final day, the Wallachians counterattacked fiercely, and their cavalry managed to get around the Ottoman force and attack their rear. The result was a tremendous victory against overwhelming odds. However, the greater realities of the war basically remained, and the Ottomans still were able to progress, taking Bucharest and Târgoviște, the capital, Târgoviște being the current capital and Bucharest being one of the more important cities. So it's one of these cases where, you know, when you have 16,000 against 100,000, even if that 16,000 force is able to win a, a substantial victory against somewhere around a third of that main 100,000 force, you know, even if the Ottomans lose, say, 20,000 soldiers, they still have an overwhelming advantage. And so, well, the Wallachians don't have much of a chance. But by the fall, reinforcements arrived from Transylvania and the Habsburgs. Now, together, this new force managed to defeat the Ottomans at Bucharest and at Gheorghiu, which is just across the Danube from Ruse, where the Ottoman army had initially crossed. So, this led the Ottomans to try to flee across the Danube in panic, and resulted in them losing thousands of soldiers. So, I mean, frankly, quite remarkably, despite this massive Ottoman invasion, with some help, the Wallachians pushed them back, sent them back over the Danube. Now, also, though we don't have too many details, at some point in 1595, Sofia was attacked by a group of Bulgarian haiduks, including the legendary haiduk Chavdar. Now, for reference, Christo Botev, a Bulgarian poet and kind of revolutionary, wrote an excellent poem about him that I think I'll probably post in the page for this episode. Uh, I was 
at some point writing, I wrote maybe 40,000 words of a novel about uh, Bulgarian history, and the opening of one of the chapters was that poem, because I really liked it. So you can check that out. There'll be a link in the description of the episode. Now, we don't have any details about this attack on Sofia, just sort of that it happened sometime around here, but it shows that these Hajduk bands and these kind of uprisings, these little mini rebellions and rebelliousness, were extending into Bulgarian lands, not just areas farther north, you know, the areas we talked about like the Banat. Now, 1595 was actually quite a year because even more happened. It, remember, it began in the first days with the death of the Sultan, but it's clear that the Ottomans really faced a struggle for the throne had they faced a struggle for the throne, it could have been a perfect storm. I mean, allowing the vassal states and the Habsburgs an opening to deliver a major blow against the Ottomans while they were embroiled in a civil war could have been a major blow against the Ottoman Empire. But it wasn't to be. Instead, while the Christian allies did make substantial gains, at the end of 1595, the results of the war are far from certain. Remember, Moldavia is out of the war, Wallachia and Transylvania have made some real big wins. Both sides are making some gains and some losses in Hungary. There, not that much is happening. So, yeah, it's unclear. In the early months of 1596, the war spread even further. Angered by the burning of the relics of St. Sava and eager to gain their independence, the populations of Herzegovina and, roughly, Montenegro appealed to the Habsburgs for help. While they were busy fighting in Hungary, the Habsburgs couldn't really offer military aid, but that uprising began nonetheless. Within weeks, it spread, and the Archbishop of Ohrid proclaimed a full uprising extending all the way down into Albania. So, in essence now, more or less all of the Balkans north of Greece was rising up against the Ottomans, with the exception of the kind of core Bulgarian lands around the Balkan mountains. Over the course of 1596, the rebelling Serbs captured Klis. Michael the Brave of Wallachia led several raids south of the Danube, all the way from Vidin in the west to Dobrja in the east, again, you know, attacking and liberating in Bulgarian lands. In June, a new Ottoman army left Constantinople, marching through Edirne, Filibe, which is called Plovdiv today, Sofia, and Nish, all the way to Belgrade. Once they crossed into Austrian territory, that Ottoman army resolved to complete their conquest of the fortress of Eger, effectively cutting off the Habsburgs from their Transylvanian allies. So this makes sense, right? Uh, Transylvania, Wallachia, and the Habsburgs are all cooperating. And so if the Ottomans can cut them off, can take the territory dividing them, it'll make this cooperation and the sending of reinforcements much more difficult and make it a lot easier for the Ottomans to defeat them. By October, they were successful. Eger was taken, its population was massacred in retaliation for a massacre of Ottomans in another Hungarian castle by the Austrians. Soon after that, the Ottomans got word that an Austrian and Transylvanian army was heading their way. Now, the Sultan wished to return to Constantinople instead of sort of engaging this army, he wanted to just go home with his force, but he was persuaded to stay by his Grand Vizier. After all, the Ottomans had roughly double the soldiers as their Christian foes, around 80 to 100,000 compared to 40 to 50,000. And the two sides met on a marshy field. The battle, 
which followed was frankly more similar to 18th century warfare than anything we've seen in the last few centuries, with the Christian forces digging trenches and both sides using firearms extensively. We've been seeing this in these recent battles, right? That artillery and kind of individual, they're not rifles yet because they're not rifled, but arquebuses, you know, these early forms of rifles are becoming even more prominent and important in these battles. And this is really an interesting mark on how we're transitioning gradually into the early modern period and seeing warfare transform. An Ottoman historian who was alive at the time had this quote describing the battle. Quote, The Christians broke through the Ottoman army, but the soldiers of Islam had not yet felt the defeat. Then they started to plunder and taking of booty at the command headquarters of the Ottomans. Under a few flags, a large group of Christian soldiers attacked the tent where the chests of gold money of the Ottoman exchequer were kept. They killed and otherwise eliminated the Janissary and household cavalry soldiers guarding the the state treasury. The Christian soldiers got to the treasury chests of gold coin and put their flags of cross over them and started to dance around them. End quote. Just as before, Sultan Mehmed III wished to accept defeat and retreat, but was persuaded to remain and fight. The next day, Austrian troops nearly managed to capture and kill the Sultan himself, but his retinue fought them off. The Ottoman soldiers saw this and believed that the Christians were retreating, and the resulting morale boost pushed the Ottomans, who managed to outflank their enemy and pull victory from the jaws of defeat. Ultimately, both sides suffered losses in the tens of thousands. But the Battle of Hachova was still a vital victory for the Ottomans, one which was celebrated almost like an ancient Roman triumph in the capital, Constantinople. But what's remarkable here, really, is that this was such a close-run thing. Imagine if those Austrian soldiers had captured or killed the Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed III, what could have happened? At the time, the Sultan had two sons, but they were both just babies. And, having, of course, just recently killed all of his brothers, the Ottoman Empire could have been left leaderless just at this moment when it was facing rebellions all over its Balkan territories and substantial resistance by its vassals and the Habsburgs. It's a hypothetical, but in my mind, had this battle, had this one moment of this battle gone just a little bit differently history could have changed tremendously. But, again, it was not to be. All of this fighting had been taking place, revolts were spreading even further through the Ottoman Empire. Greek magnates in Albania, working with Neapolitans and Spaniards, started an uprising there, though it was undisciplined and put down by August. Despite the setback, the Serbian uprising was still spreading as the year 1596 wound to a close. With the coming year, 1597, the future of the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans seemed to hang in the balance just as much as it had with the ending of the previous two years. The uprising in Banat had been brutally put down, yet more uprisings were spreading from Herzegovina to Serbia, Macedonia to Albania, Moldavia had been brought back under the Ottoman thumb, but Wallachia and Transylvania remained allies of the Austrian Habsburgs, who despite their loss at the Battle of Hachova, were still ready to keep fighting. Next time 
the war will drag on as revolts spread yet further through the Ottoman Empire. Yes, it's finally happening. After a century and a half, if you count back from the Crusade of Varna, Bulgarians are finally going to rise up against the Ottomans. You won't want to miss it. Now, just a quick note at the end, I forgot to mention this at the very beginning as we're wrapping up, but my girlfriend and I are actually going to be visiting Malta in the very first week of May. And so it's a small country. I don't know if I have any listeners there, but if anyone has any tips, uh, cool history things, I definitely want to go check out all these areas where the Knights of Malta resisted the Ottoman invasion of that island. But in general, if anyone has any tips, tricks, ideas, know someone there, get in touch. Uh, we're going to be there for a week and be for kind of uh, legal reasons. It's the first time I've been able to leave Bulgaria in a year and a half, and I cannot even begin to explain how excited I am to finally travel again. So if you're listening to this later, this is uh, May of 2019, but if you got some ideas, let me know. So this episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language of the podcast, uh, Bulgarian language version, at bghistorypodcast.com. And you can see a link to the episode here in the description. So until the next time.